everybody. Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyal Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today I'm thrilled to say that we are joined by Sam Levine. Sam is a voting rights reporter for The Guardian. He formerly worked at The Huffington Post. He is an expert on all things voting rights. Sam, welcome and thank you for passing judgment with us. Hey, Jessica. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I know this is a slow season for you, what with it being 2020 going into what may be the most contentious presidential election of history. So we're particularly grateful for your time. We'll get right to it. Question number one, I'm sure we both get this a lot. Are we likely to know the winner of the presidential election on election night? I think it's extremely unlikely that we will know. This is going to be an election like no other. We're going to have an unprecedented level of mail-in voting, which it will take election officials longer to process. And that means that it's just going to take a little while longer to know the final result. Some of the most important states in the country when it comes to the presidential election, states like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, are actually not allowed under their state laws to begin counting mail-in ballots until election day. And just even small things when it comes to mail-in ballots, like taking the ballot out of the envelope, verifying the information on the ballot envelope, that takes election officials time. And so it's very, very likely, I think, that we're going to see extended waiting after election day to find out who wins the presidential election. So as you said, some states have laws and states that might absolutely be key to this election that say, don't start counting until election day. We're going to have very likely way more ballots that are returned via vote by mail than in the past. And so I just want to reiterate for the listeners, if it takes a while, is it true that that doesn't necessarily mean anything's wrong with the process? It's just our new reality. If it takes a while, it doesn't mean that there's anything fishy or wrong or unusual. Experts are already saying we should expect this to happen, that we want to prepare the public for the possibility that they're not going to know who won the presidency on election night. And this counting of mail-in votes and other kinds of votes are something called provisional ballots, which are ballots that people cast if there's a question about their eligibility at the polls. There are always a significant number of ballots that are counted after election day, but they typically don't get uh, as much attention because it's not a majority of the votes cast. There's a sufficient number of ballots that are cast in person, either through early voting or on election day, that give media networks um, a good enough sense to project who the winner is going to be. Now, Sam, we hear a lot about something called voter suppression, and I'm hoping as an expert in the area, can you tell us what's your definition of true voter suppression? And then next, what are the most common ways that we see that it occurs? Voter suppression, in my mind, is something that is designed to make it more difficult for someone to vote, to keep someone away from the ballot box. And it can take a lot of forms. One form it can take is in explicit policies or laws that put obstacles in the ways of people getting to the polls. That can be something 
like a voter ID requirement, requiring people to show a form of voter ID that um, they might not have or that they might not have the time to go and get. Voter suppression can also take the form of voter intimidation, making public statements that say things like, if you aren't sure you're an eligible voter, you shouldn't vote, that you could be prosecuted. Things like that are also voter suppression because they mount fear among people that they are taking a risk if they come to the polls, creating confusion around voting policies. Um, We've seen in every election, there are kind of dirty tricks saying things like Republicans vote on Tuesday and Democrats vote on Wednesday, deliberately Mm -hmm. giving people false information to make it less likely that their vote will count. Do you see in your reporting an uptick in voter suppression, or maybe it just feels like there's an uptick to me because we talk about it more? What are you seeing objectively based on your work? I think there's a much greater awareness over policies that appear to be neutral on their face can have a suppressive effect. There's now mounting evidence that certain racial minorities, young people, students are all much less likely to possess forms of ID that are required at the polls. We know that processes used to remove people from the voting rolls are much more likely to impact people who move a lot, people who are lower income. And there's a much greater willingness among civil rights groups, among the public to call out false statements about voting um, that could confuse people and lead to them not having their ballots cast. So, yeah, you just brought up two really hot button topics in voting rights and voting laws, which are um, voter ID requirements and culling voters from the voting rolls, when to remove voters. And obviously, both of those have deep partisan implications. So Republicans tend to support stricter uh, voting ID requirements, saying that they're needed to protect the integrity of elections. Uh, We know that they typically benefit when there are stricter voter ID laws because younger and more minority voters tend to have more trouble accessing voter IDs. And those are the people who, again, tend to vote for Democrats. And same thing with respect to culling the voting rolls. It tends to be that the people who are not going to Uh, show up at every election or turn in a postcard that says, yes, I still am who I am and and I live where I previously lived, that those tend to be Democratic voters. And it seems to me that there's so much partisan bickering over voting laws. And is this a new phenomenon or did the parties always do this and maybe we're just more attuned because we may see a very close election? I think that There have always been partisan fights over voting rules. I mean, if you look at the 2000 election, a presidential contest that was ultimately decided by the U.S. Supreme Court, there was realization that these legal fights can have profound consequences over elections. And even before the pandemic hit, there was already a slew of lawsuits that were being brought by um, the Democratic Party um, last year, taking aim at a lot of restrictive voting policies. Um, Things like signature matching for absentee ballots, these requirements that uh, a signature on an absentee ballot has to exactly match 
the signature that an election official has on file for them. But over the last few months, Republicans have really stepped up an effort to oppose those lawsuits and in some cases bring their own suits. And many of those lawsuits are either seeking to uphold existing rules, saying that there shouldn't be an accommodation made because of the pandemic, or they're seeking to um, impose kind of new restrictions, things like restricting the number of ballot drop boxes that a county can offer to voters, things like that. And so the contours that we've kind of seen are what you've described. The Democratic lawsuits have generally tried to ease the rules around voting, pointing to the extreme hardships that people are going to face because of the pandemic. And the Republican lawsuits in general have sought to preserve the rules that are already in place. It's so interesting to see this play out in such stark relief because it's certainly a phenomenon that's not new. I mean, if you just count up the number of voting lawsuits that have started that are related to the pandemic, it's really startling. And I know that you're covering a lot of this. And I wanted to pick up on something else you said uh, when we were talking about voter suppression, which is um, misinformation. And I know you've written about this too. We wanted to highlight this separately for a second. What is your definition of campaign misinformation? We always kind of, I think, assume a little bit of fabrication, a little bit of stretching of the truth when it comes to political campaigns. What makes campaign misinformation different? In my mind, misinformation is stuff that's put out there to deliberately confuse someone that you can, it's not a matter of exaggerating facts or twisting the truth. It's something that someone knowingly puts out there to cause confusion. Um, You know, in a campaign, you might sit, you might see a candidate, you know, take a slice of data, you know, to, to make their point about job growth or job creation, but saying something like it's unsafe to cast an absentee ballot, there's going to be massive fraud at the polls, you need to bring your passport or your birth certificate if you want to vote. That to me is misinformation clearly on another level. It's something that is factually and clearly untrue and designed to mislead people and confuse people about the voting process. It's so helpful to hear you say that because I hear people wave it off. Oh, politicians always lie. And this really is qualitatively different. And I think you explained that perfectly. And the next thing we talk a lot or we hear a lot about a rigged election or a stolen election. And I'm hoping, again, as an expert who's reporting on these issues, what do we mean by that? Or is it just a phrase that people throw out to say, I won't be happy with the results? I mean, do we have a black letter definition of rigged or stolen election? And is there any evidence that this will happen? I'll take the second question first. I think yeah. there's no there's no evidence that this election is going to be deliberately rigged or stolen. But I think what's really interesting when it comes to those phrases rigged and stolen election is that they mean different things to 
different people on both sides. President Trump has said the election is going to be rigged and stolen because people are going to cheat. They're going to commit voter fraud. They're going to fabricate votes, that mail-in ballots are going to be stolen out of mailboxes, which are all false claims. Those, you know, that has been studied and there's no evidence that that is going to happen. But he clearly has inflamed his supporters to believe that there's going to be some behavior that votes are literally going to be stolen and fabricated and that the election is going to be taken away from them. And on the Democratic side, I think you hear similar rhetoric after Stacey Abrams' loss in Georgia in 2018, you know, you heard, you still hear Democratic politicians say that Stacey Abrams is the legitimate winner of that race, that she should be the governor of Georgia. And I think it shows that there is this framing around elections now that when people feel the rules are unfair that they that one side has an advantage over the other that the election is not legitimate that it's being stolen from them and i personally think that rhetoric is extremely dangerous and it's something that i'm thinking a lot about in my own reporting writing about these issues because you obviously want to highlight the extreme threat to democracy that voter suppression poses. But at the same time, you also want to give Americans faith that the result of this election is something that they can have confidence in, regardless of whether they support Joe Biden or Donald Trump or, you know, a third party candidate. I really think that, you know, in America, the foundation of our democracy is accepting that, you know, no matter who wins and who loses, we accept the results as legitimate. And if we start to go down a road where we don't see our leaders as legitimately having power, I think that's very, very dangerous. And I think a, an immediate challenge is just highlighting how these practices can be extremely unfair and extremely dangerous, while also framing it in a way that can give people confidence um, in the results of an election. This is why I try to say to my students and to other people when I give speeches, the way to try and overcome misinformation, the way to try and quote unquote, take back power is vote, vote early so that you can get over any hurdles that you need to. And unfortunately, there's just more, it seems to me, responsibility on us to make sure that we're reading information that we can trust, you know, that everybody in fact votes on Tuesday, not some of us vote on Tuesday and then some of us vote on Wednesday. And it does seem to me that we just, there's a lot more on us, but that the way to try and overcome a lot of these obstacles is to take the power to make sure we're registered, get ballots, fill in those ballots, really dot your I's, cross your T's, and then don't wait until the last minute. Don't wait to rely on the postal service. And I'm glad that you're doing the reporting that you're doing on this. And um, I want to actually move on to something that I know you've written a little bit about. I never thought that I would be asking this, but what is a contested election and how could we get there? This is something that I think a lot of experts are very 
scared about. And one issue that is of heightened concern this year is that because there's going to be a delay in knowing the results and it's going to involve the counting of mail-in ballots, that there are certain deadlines that states have to meet in December for when the Electoral College meets. And then when Congress convenes again in January, they count the votes of the Electoral College. And there's concern that if disputes about vote counting, about who won a state, continue into December, that then we start to get into questions about who the electors state should send to the Electoral College should be, and who has the power to legitimately appoint those electors. So if, say, um, North Carolina doesn't have its election results, if there are still ongoing disputes about North Carolina's election results come December, and the North Carolina legislature, decide, which is controlled by Republicans, decides that it wants to send one set of electors to the Electoral College, and the governor, who's a Democrat, decides that he wants to send another set of electors. Which set is legitimate? Which set does Congress decide to accept? And there are scholars who are already writing that the law that is supposed to govern these kinds of disputes, it's called the Electoral Count Act, and um, it was written in the late 19th century, is very vague about who has the legitimacy to appoint these electors and what should happen. And there are a number of things that would need to happen for us to get to that point where we have a severe crisis about the legitimacy of the electors and the electoral college. But should we get there, I think we are on extremely um, thin ground. It would be really uncharted legal territory and would certainly be something I would think that is ultimately going to wind up in front of the U.S. Supreme Court again. So I am hopeful, maybe naively so, that we won't get to that point, but it is a possibility that there are there is already considerable concern about. Speaking of considerable concern, uh, loyal listeners of Passing Judgment know that we actually have a separate quick episode uh, called something like All Your Election Nightmares, and we talk briefly about this. And it is remarkable that we were we are in a space where we're talking semi-seriously about a contested election. But I want to step back to a little bit earlier in the potential election litigation and probably end our discussion here, which is what should listeners be on alert for in terms of the initial voting rights litigation? What are some of the very first suits that you think we might be most likely to see? I think that on around election night, I think one thing to immediately be on alert for is a candidate claiming victory before all the votes are counted. It might There might be a snapshot of votes on election night that appear to show one candidate leading, and you, it's very easy to see a scenario where that candidate comes out and says, you know, I won the election, look at the results and say that before all the votes are counted. I think the initial round of litigation we're likely to see is going to focus on 
the rules around counting absentee ballots. Many states require ballots to arrive at an election office by election night in order to be counted. And there's been a big push among Democrats to sue to try and get that deadline extended. And I think that we're going to see more of those lawsuits as we get closer to the election. Um, But one issue that we saw in the primary is that when states extend that deadline, they use something called the postmark deadline, saying that um, a, a ballot will get counted as long as it's postmarked by election day. But one problem that we saw was that postmarks were coming in illegible. There were some ballots that were being returned with no postmark at all. And there was a question about what should we do if we can't determine when the ballot was postmarked. I think that's an issue that we could see arise. I think another focus will be around the signature requirements, states that require voters to have a signature that matches the one that they have on file. Many of the people who compare signatures are not handwriting experts. They're trying to compare a ton of signatures in a very short amount of time. And it can be very easy to make a mistake, um, especially for a lay person. And I think we're going to see a lot of litigation around that. There will also be other things, people who forget to completely fill out the affidavit on an absentee ballot. They might forget to give the date. They might forget to get a witness. Um, I think those will also be issues that we're going to see challenged. Yep. For me, all of these fall within this bucket of basically how do states verify ballots and it is as you say so important and you know for the listeners one thing that I think about a lot is that we spend so much time focusing on you know who's the nominee going to be who is he or she going to pick as the running mate and you know what are their ads like what's what's their position on you know fill in the blank immigration criminal justice environment And a lot of times it can come down to what are the postmark rules in this swing state or what are the ballot verification rules in this particular swing state or the, you know, matching signature provision. And so everything you talk about is so important and really can, I think, particularly now, determine the outcome more than a lot of things that we tend to focus or misfocus on. So I thank you for everything you're doing. And I always end the podcast because you just taught us a lot about voting rights um, to learn a little bit more about you. So I ask my guests the same three questions. They have absolutely nothing to do with voting rights. Mm-hmm. Uh-oh. Question, uh-oh. <laughs> Which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party and why? I would say... John Lewis, just because I never got to interview him. I've been writing about voting rights for the last few years. And one of my big regrets is that I never um, really got to talk to John Lewis. And one thing that I'm constantly thinking about in my writing is how has the struggle around voting rights now changed since 1965 when the Voting Rights Act was passed and really understanding how some of the things that people face today might not be that different from the stuff that we learn about in our history textbooks and tend to think about as a relic of the past. And 
I just love to pick his brain about that. So I know that's sort of a cop out because it has to deal with voting rights, but I would just love to have sit down with John Lewis. All answers are welcome. <laughs> Next, you're going to be stranded on a desert island. Sometimes mm-hmm. it feels like that during a pandemic. Yeah. And yeah. you can bring one meal. What is it? Oh, it's New York pizza for me. I grew up in New York City and live here now. And I think I could eat pizza for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That's that's an easy one. All right. You get one <laughs> superpower for an hour. What is it and why? I think teleport. Like just to be able to go anywhere on a whim, even for an hour, I think would be super cool. And you could cover the globe pretty well within an hour if you could teleport. So yeah, teleporting. There we go. You can find Sam on Twitter at SRL. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Past Judgment Pod, and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. Sam, thank you for passing judgment with us. Thank you to the listeners. We will see you next time. 